Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Glad to have you along with us. It is uh, two weeks today since Ash Wednesday of 2022, and we are now in the second full week of the season of Lent. So I want to ask you how you are doing with your Lenten sacrifice. You know, uh, most people, as you know, don't uh, keep their New Year's resolutions, and it is not uncommon for Catholics to stumble when they give something up for Lent. So the question is, uh, what do you do if you mess up your Lenten sacrifice? Is it a mortal sin, or is it is it a sin at all? And, and just what are the rules regarding this particularly Catholic practice? And we're going to look at that a little later in the show, and also take a look at the often misunderstood doctrine on indulgences. But first, as always, we begin with uh, readings from this uh, past Sunday's Holy Mass in the extraordinary form, which was the second Sunday of Lent, which is traditionally called Reminiscere Sunday. From the first word of the introit, Reminiscere means remember. Remember, O God, thy bowels of compassion and thy mercies that are from the beginning of the world. So the epistle from the second Sunday of Lent is taken from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 7. Brethren, we pray and beseech you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you are to walk and to please God, so also you would walk, that you may abound the more. In other words, St. Paul is saying, you learn from us how you should live in order to please God, so in the name of the Lord Jesus, we urge you to actually live that way. He goes on, for you know what precepts I have given to you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this is one of the most often quoted verses on this program, and the reason is that it tells us that the will of God is not some inscrutable mystery. He has shown us how to live in order to be holy. The Lord gave us the commandments and uh, the Beatitudes and the sacraments to help us be holy because holiness is his will for us. St. Paul continues, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles that know not God and that no man overreach nor circumvent his brother in business, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we have told you before and have testified. Now, this is generally understood to mean that we must both avoid sexual immorality and injustice in the way we deal with others, and, and that's true. But in the original context, St. Paul was applying those general principles to a specific situation, namely that uh, the Christian converts in Thessalonica were getting married to close family members, which is incense, incest, right? Which is, of course, forbidden to Christians. But incest was allowed by the pagans because of their laws concerning inheritance. See, so quite apart from the inherent immorality of this practice, it also led to divorces and lawsuits, you know, because other families... Uh, family members wanted their fair share of the family legacy. <clears throat> so St. Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand that they cannot behave in this way and at the same time be good Christians. As he says, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto sanctification in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sanctification is the process of holiness. 
And this goes for us too. I mean, bottom line, God wants you to be holy. And he's given you the means to be holy. But you cannot be holy. In fact, you cannot call yourself a devout Catholic if you ignore the moral teaching of the church. So Joe Biden, call your office. I, I think I made that that joke last year, and I will continue to uh, until, you know, something changes. So especially in Lent, we should pray that we would never be addicted to earthly lusts like the heathens that don't know God, but rather that we can live in modesty and chastity and holiness in order to deserve the name of Christian. And that's no nonsense. Now, next up is the gospel for Reminiscere Sunday, which is uh, the transfiguration taken from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. At that time, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshaded them. And lo, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the disciples, hearing, fell upon their face and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus was transfigured, as we say, on Mount Tabor. St. Thomas Aquinas says, Our Lord, after foretelling his passion to his disciples, had exhorted them to follow this path of his. Now, in order that anyone go straight along a road, he must have some knowledge of the end. Thus, an archer will not shoot the arrow straight unless he first see the target. In other words, the transfiguration shows us how our bodies will be glorified when we rise from the dead. And seeing a vision of this happy ending gives us uh, something to shoot for and should encourage us to be patient in our trials and sufferings, and especially during this penitential season of Lent, that Sunday follows Good Friday. So, why did Moses and Elias, or Elijah, as we would uh, refer to him today, why did Moses and Elijah appear with our Lord? Well, Moses, as the representative of the old law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, came to do homage and to testify that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, we know that Elijah was translated from this world without tasting death, which is to say he was assumed into heaven, body and soul. So when he appeared on Mount Tabor, he appeared in his own body as Jesus uh, appeared in his body, uh, showing it transformed, showing it glorified. But what about Moses? Well, you know, there's a Jewish tradition that the body of Moses was also assumed into heaven. 
In fact, in the uh, the dispute between St. Michael and the archangel, uh, St. Michael the archangel and the devil over the body of Moses uh, that, that St. Jude refers to in his epistle, that comes from a, a book of the Jewish Apocrypha called The Assumption of Moses. And now I believe that's also related to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 3, when it talks about the two witnesses. And these two witnesses that Jesus will commission to prophesy and do miracles in the last day. And who are the two witnesses? Now, uh, some biblical scholars suggest Enoch and Elijah, because, you know, we know that Elijah was taken uh, up to heaven. But Genesis chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 24, tell us that Enoch lived for 365 years before he was taken by God. The text actually reads that Enoch, quote, walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him, which has been interpreted as Enoch's entering heaven alive, you know, body and soul in, in both Jewish and Christian traditions, <clears throat> although it's interpreted differently by different groups. Uh, of course, and some will say that the two witnesses are unknown figures from the future. But there is a long-standing interpretation that the two witnesses represent the law and the prophets, just like at the Transfiguration, and they are therefore identified as Moses and Elijah. <clears throat> also, when you read further in Revelation chapter 11, John prophesies the miracles that the two witnesses will perform. Verse 6 says that they'll have the power to, to turn water into blood, which of course repeats that uh, famous miracle of Moses in Exodus 7. It was one of the ten uh, plagues on Egypt. And then verse 5 says they'll have the power to destroy their enemies with fire which uh, corresponds to the confrontation of Elijah and the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And, and then further, Jewish tradition expects both Moses and Elijah to return based on Malachi 4, uh, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. You know, so the letter of Jude and the fact that Moses and Elijah both appeared with Jesus at the Transfiguration, I think, support that view. And there's one other thing I'll point to and that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. When Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus die, they both go to Sheol, the land of the dead. Dives uh, goes to the hell of the damned, and Lazarus to Abraham's bosom, a.k.a. the, the limbus patrem, right? the limbo of the fathers, where all those uh, souls of the just were waiting for Jesus to reopen the gates of heaven. And Dives calls out to Abraham, Father, I beseech thee, send Lazarus to my father's house, that he may testify to my brethren, lest they also come into this place of torments. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said unto him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they believe if one rises again from the dead. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the same two witnesses in this parable and at the transfiguration and in the end times. And in every case, the witnesses point to Jesus. Okay, we'll be back with more uh, No Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we'll be right back.
right. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. A final word <clears throat> on the transfiguration and Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. Our Lord himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have been fulfilled. Now, the church tells us that this passing away of heaven and earth is not the end of the world. The turning of the ages comes with the apocalyptic event of Jesus' death and resurrection. And those to whom this gospel is addressed, whether in the first century or in the 21st, are living in the final age under the new and eternal covenant. The moral law is still written on the human heart, and the message of the prophets remains that the old sacrifices have been fulfilled by the one sacrifice of the Lamb of God, which is made present on our altars in the Holy Mass. As it was then, so it is now, and so shall it be until the end. And this is what our, Latin, our Lenten sacrifice is all about. And now, story time. Once upon a time, an Irishman moved to a little coastal town in England, and one night he came into the local pub and ordered three pints of beer and proceeded to quietly drink them all. Next night he did the same thing. He orders three beers and he drinks them all. The third night he orders his three beers and the bartender asks him, why? Why do you always order three beers at a time? And he said, Oh, sure, and I have two brothers. One went off to America, and the other to Australia, and I come to England. But before we left home, we promised that whenever we went out for a pint, we'd each drink one for all three of us. Well, the bartender told the patrons, and they were all charmed and amused by the brother's promise, and over the next few weeks, they became quite fond of their new neighbor and his little eccentricity. But then... One night, the Irishman came into the pub, and he only ordered two beers. And the whole pub went quiet. And when the bartender brought him his round, he said, I just want you to know on behalf of the whole pub that we're all sincerely sorry for your loss. And the Irish fellow says, oh, what do you mean? He says, and the bartender says, well, since you only ordered two pints, we naturally assumed that one of your brothers must have died. But the Irishman said, oh, no, me brothers are fine. I just give it up for Lent. Every year at this time, Catholics all around the world give something up for Lent. It is two weeks today since Ash Wednesday 2022, and we are now in the second full week of the season of Lent. So the question is, how are you doing with your Lenten sacrifice? I mentioned at the top of the show, most folks don't keep their New Year's resolutions, and it is not uncommon for Catholics to stumble when they give up something for Lent. So the question is, what do you do if you mess up your Lenten sacrifice? Is it a mortal sin? Uh, just what are the rules regarding this uh, practice? Now, I, I was uh, traveling last week. We went to uh, Georgia. My eldest son and his wife just had their first child, a little boy, and we went out for his baptism. And so uh, I was not here last week. They ran a show from last Lent, and I, I believe that I talked about uh, the 40 days of Lent and how, you know, once upon a time, all Catholics fasted all 40 days of Lent, 
and that in the Middle Ages, they would both fast and abstain for all 40 days. And also mentioned that the 40 days are comprised of all of the weekdays of Lent, but minus the Sundays, because we are not called to fast on any Sunday of the year. So 40 days of fasting within the 46 days of the Lenten season. Now, under the current law of the church, we are only obliged to abstain on Ash Wednesday and the Fridays of Lent and to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Right? That's all the fasting and abstinence that we are called to or obliged to. However, in keeping with the penitential spirit of the season, it's customary for Catholics to voluntarily make some other 40-day sacrifice, that is, to give something up for Lent. <clears throat> but what happens if you fail in your commitment? For example, is it a mortal sin to mess up your, your Lenten sacrifice? Uh, let us assume that you, um, as an example, you drive through McDonald's and you order your Big Mac combo and the person on the speaker says, and what would you like to drink with that? And you, your knee-jerk response is, oh, a medium diet Coke, please. And then halfway through your lunch, you remember, oh, I gave up soda for Lent. Now, have you committed a mortal sin? In a word, no. In fact, you haven't committed a sin at all. Giving something up for Lent is a pious custom. It is not an obligation. It's not a solemn vow. Giving something up for Lent is, is voluntary. It does not oblige under the pain of sin. Although, I mean, having made the commitment, you should repent of your negligence and you should strive to be uh, more aware, more consciously enter into the Lenten spirit in such a way that this sort of thing is less likely to happen again. But uh, let's uh, consider another scenario. What if you're on your way to the office and you realize you haven't had time for breakfast? So again, you drive through McDonald's and you order your usual sausage McMuffin and coffee and you dive into the sandwich right there in the car and you turn on the local Catholic radio and suddenly realize it is Friday of Lent and you're eating meat. Is that a mortal sin? Well, this is more complicated because abstaining from meat on the Fridays of Lent is a precept of the church and it does oblige under the pain of sin. However, if you genuinely forgot, then it's not a mortal sin because we know uh, to be guilty of a mortal sin, three things must be present. It must be a grave matter. Uh, there, you must have uh, had sufficient reflection of the mind and full consent of the will. So if you genuinely forgot, then you're not guilty of a, a mortal sin because you didn't reflect on it or give your full consent, uh, uh, the full consent of your will. In other words, mortal sins aren't accidents, okay? They are, they are knowingly and intentionally chosen. It'd be different if you went to McDonald's knowing it was a Friday of Lent and purposely chose to get the sausage McMuffin, just despite the, the law of the church, okay? For that, you would need to repent and go to confession because abstaining from meat on the Fridays of Lent is a precept of the church. It's a command of the church. Although the laws of fast and abstinence do make exceptions for certain people, and we've gone into that before. But back to the custom of giving something up for Lent, what if you've decided to give up, uh, say you give up sweets for Lent, and then you just can't stand it anymore, right? I have to have something sweet. And you go to 7-Eleven and you buy some, you know, some Twinkies or cupcakes or, or whatever, and you gobble them up and then you immediately feel guilty. You feel shame and remorse. And is that a sin? Is that a mortal sin? And again, no. And for the same reasons as above, your voluntary Lenten observance does not oblige under pain of sin. 
And by the way, if I seem obsessed with junk food, uh, it's likely because I'm, uh, once again, I'm doing the honors program this year and fasting for all the days of Lent. In fact, this year, I started right after Septuagesima Sunday in order to, to get a jump on it. Um, and I will say, I'll tell you right now that I've already fallen. You know, we went traveling and, and I think that, um, you know, keeping my strength up when you're going for long periods without eating because you're on a plane or whatever. But, you know, that, that's as it may be. Uh, I can remember last year, I mentioned to the RCIA director that I was, you know, he said, what are you giving up for Lent? And I said, I'm, I'm you know, just, I'm fasting the whole 40 days. And he mentioned that one of our group was fasting on bread and water. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's always somebody. Uh, the point is that the sacrifice is voluntary. Okay. So we don't look down our nose at anybody else's sacrifice. We don't feel guilty if we see that somebody is doing more and we don't feel any pride over our personal observance when we see somebody else fall. It's like Thomas Akempis says in The Imitation of Christ, you may be in a good disposition now, but you do not know how long you will persevere in it. Always keep in mind that all are frail, but none more frail than yourself. <clears throat> As we've been talking about these last few weeks, it is particularly um, appropriate to um, do the Stations of the Cross, to be uh, practice devotions to our Lord's Passion, um, especially at this time of year, especially during Lent. And of course, a, a lot of churches have the, the do the Way of the Cross, you know, as a communal event on the Fridays of Lent. But there's there's a lesson for us, uh, well, one among many, in the Stations of the Cross, and that is that our Lord falls three separate times while He's carrying His cross to Calvary. And that's there, I believe, as a lesson for you and me when we pick up our own cross to follow him. The fact that we stumble and fall in the observance of our Lenten sacrifice is part of the journey. It is a, a, a powerful reminder of our frailty. What did our Lord say to Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And further, as I've often mentioned on this program, the poverty of spirit that's mentioned by Jesus in the first beatitude is all about the recognition that, as it says in John 15, 5, without Jesus, we can do nothing. Okay, so while accidents are not mortal sins and giving something up for Lent does not oblige under pain of sin, uh, if you find yourself often forgetting your Lenten obligations or even your own voluntary sacrifices, you would probably want to bring that to a priest in the sacrament of confession, just as you would if you were to find yourself frequently committing uh, some venial sin. See, that's something that you would also want to address in the confessional because little sins lead to bigger ones. And purging ourselves of sin, and especially our attachment to sins, even venial ones, is the whole point of mortification. Like St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Now, the pastoral statement on penance and abstinence, let me say that again. The pastoral statement on penance and abstinence was issued by what was then called the National Conference of Catholic Bishops back in November of 1966. 
and it goes over all of the new rules for Lent, and you can find it on the bishop's website at usccb.org. All right, and there's a lot about the voluntary aspect of penance and mortification, and it's written in that typically verbose way that modern church documents are written. But it actually encourages the three traditional practices that, according to this document, quote, are to be taken up with renewed vigor, unquote, during the season of Lent, namely prayer and almsgiving in addition to fasting. Okay, sometimes known as the three pillars of Lent, these practices fall under the cardinal virtue of justice. Okay, that is what we owe to others. So prayer is a matter of justice towards God. Almsgiving is a matter of justice toward your neighbor, especially the poor. And fasting is justice towards yourself. That's right, you owe it to yourself to practice penance and mortification. And we're going to talk about that more, a little bit more, when we come back. And also we're going to be talking about um, the point of Lent is about growing in holiness and the infallible means church has provided for us. All that and more when we come back right after this. Uh, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the season of Lent and the practices, our Lenten practices. We just talked about the three pillars of Lent, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. So um, I mentioned the Station of the Cross is one of my favorite devotions, especially during Lent. And I want to share with you just something that, that struck me a few years ago, that the 10th station is Jesus is stripped of his garments. Now, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you know how grievously wounded our Lord was in the scourging of the pillar. And then after that scourging, they put his robe back on him when he carried the cross. So the blood from the scourging would have dried and stuck to the cloth. So when they stripped him of his, of his garments, all of those wounds were, were brutally reopened. Now, we practice mortification in order to strip ourselves of sin so that Jesus might clothe us in holiness. But when we think about the stripping of the garments, we should come as no surprise that stripping ourselves of our sins is going to be painful, that it hurts to sacrifice all of our unlawful attachments. And that's kind of the point. You know, that, that, is, that is a suffering that you must endure, but that has the greatest meaning. It, if the point of Lent is to do penance in order to grow in holiness, then it's worth it, because the point of growing in holiness is to become a saint. And thankfully, the Church offers us many infallible means of doing just that. So I want to take some time now to talk about um, one of those means, which is um, the granting of indulgences. Now, this is a big topic. Obviously, it was contentious. Um, it, is a, it was a misunderstanding of the doctrine of indulgences. Uh, it was one of the prime motivations for uh, Martin Luther and the, and the whole movement of the Reformation and all the mischief that that caused, all the, the, the now tens of thousands of rival Christian denominations. But it's important for us to understand, as Catholics, to understand what indulgences are and what they're not. So first off, 
as a Catholic, you understand, you know, that there's punishment due for your sins. Eternal punishment for a mortal sin. That's why it's called a mortal sin. And temporal punishment for venial sins. Temporal meaning uh, for a time, right? It's where you get the word temporary. And even, even after those sins have been forgiven in confession, there is punishment due for your sins. Even after you've been absolved of the guilt of the sin, the need for punishment remains. And why is that? It's a matter of justice. You can think of it like a, a child who's been told not to play ball in the house. Say he breaks the rule and breaks a window or knocks over a lamp or something like that, which is why he was told not to play ball in the house in the first place. Well, the child goes to his father and confesses, I'm sorry I played ball in the house and I broke the window. And the father says, I forgive you. But he still makes the child pay for the damage, either, you know, with money or by doing some extra chores or, or whatever. In the same way, the priest gives you a penance when you go to confession, which is usually just some prayers to say. And your penance is a way to help satisfy for the temporal punishment due to your sins. Now, if we die without satisfying the temporal punishment due to our sins, we'll be obliged to do so in purgatory. But right now, one of the best ways by which we can satisfy for the temporal punishment due to our sins is to gain an indulgence. Now, what is an indulgence? It is the remission of some or all of the temporal punishment due to our sins outside the sacrament of penance. Right? That is the punishment due for our venial sins or for mortal sins that have already been forgiven in the sacrament of penance. And there's two kinds of indulgences, plenary indulgences and partial indulgences. A plenary indulgence is the full remission of all the temporal punishment due for our sins. And a partial indulgence is the remission of a part of the temporal punishment due for our sins. So, a couple of questions. Uh, how is it that the church may grant these indulgences in the first place? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ conferred the power to grant indulgences upon the church when he said to St. Peter, And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. That's Matthew 16, 19. A couple of chapters later, Matthew 18, 18, he gives this power to bind and loose to all the apostles. Now, the church grants indulgences from the great treasury of the infinite merits of Jesus Christ and the superabundant merits of the Blessed, Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. So, to, you're getting uh, this indulgence from the church who holds this great treasury. And in order to gain an indulgence, it is necessary first to be in the state of grace, to make the intention to gain the indulgence, and to fulfill the conditions that are prescribed. <coughs> Pardon me. So first, you must be in a state of grace, because indulgences do not forgive sins, okay? Unlike uh, uh, Luther, who claimed that indulgences were people trying to buy salvation. That's, that's not true. Uh, at the time, the church granted an indulgence for making a, a sacrificial offering for the building of, uh, I think it was St. Paul's Cathedral or, or some other, you know, important uh, um, building. 
the point is that you're saying, oh, give us money and, and you know, you, you get, get people out of purgatory or, or some people thought that they were buying their salvation or whatever. But obviously that's not what the doctrine is about at all. Indulgences do not forgive sins. It's not a get out of hell free card. All indulgences do is remit the punishment of venial sins or mortal sins that have already been confessed. So indulgences are also not a substitute for confession. All right, so that's number one. You have to be in a state of grace. Next, you have to make the intention to gain the indulgence. Now, the simplest way to ensure that is to make the intention part of your morning offering. I desire to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers that I shall say and the good works I shall perform this day. Amen. Okay? It's the intention. And lastly, to fulfill the conditions prescribed. Now, this is the sim this is simplest when we're talking about partial indulgences. For example, if you are in the state of grace and you make your intention, you gain a partial indulgence whenever you pray the rosary. And that partial indulgence becomes a plenary indulgence if you pray the rosary in public under the usual conditions. Another example, after communion, I make it a practice to pray the prayer before the crucifix, also known as the prayer to Jesus crucified. Behold, O kind and most sweet Jesus, I cast myself upon my knees in thy sight, etc. Now, I make it a habit um, to always pray this prayer after communion uh, because there's a partial indulgence granted uh, on all the days of the year when you pray that prayer after receiving communion. But a plenary indulgence is granted on each of the Fridays of Lent. Okay, and Passion Tide was the last two weeks of Lent. Um, to all the faithful who, after communion, piously recite this prayer before an image of Christ crucified under the usual conditions, right? We, we, we keep coming in, uh, up to that under the usual conditions thing. You know, you see a lot on old, old holy cards, uh, uh, you know, a part, an indulgence of so many days or a, uh, a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions. Well, what are the usual conditions? Well, typically, to gain a plenary indulgence, uh, in addition to the particular conditions of the indulgence act, right, in, in the case of the prayer before a crucifix, you're saying that certain prayer uh, on a certain day, or certain days after communion and before an image of Jesus crucified. Uh, but these following conditions are also necessary for gaining a plenary indulgence, whatever, you know, the, the, the particular conditions are. And these are to be in the state of grace. And, and I think the church says to be in the state of grace, at least at the time the indulgence work is complete. Say, well, uh, you mean like during the prayer? No. Some indulgence acts you know, are, are like making the stations of Rome, which is, it involves making a pilgrimage to several specific churches in Rome over several days and attending morning or evening services and, and so forth. So this, this takes a while. So if you're not in a state of grace when you start the devotion, you can still gain the indulgence as long as you make it to confession before you're done. Uh, normally, though, you need to be in a state of grace. And in addition to being in the state of grace, to have the interior disposition of complete detachment from sin, even venial sin, then sacramental confession and Holy Communion. And it is certainly better to receive Holy Communion while you're participating in the Holy Mass, but for the indulgence, just receiving communion is required. So people who are shut in or ill or whatever can still gain indulgences uh, if, if someone brings them communion. And then finally, to pray for the intentions of the Supreme Pontiff. 
Now, according to the Apostolic Penitentiary, it is appropriate but not necessary that the sacramental confession and especially Holy Communion and prayer for the Pope's intentions take place on the same day that the indulgenced work is performed. But it is, it is sufficient that these sacred rites and prayers be carried out within several days, about 20, it says, before or after the indulgenced act. So that's like a 40-day window. And, and again, these, you know, the, the, the regulations on this have loosened up some. I, I think when I first became Catholic, they were saying eight days was common, eight days before or after, now 20. The point is, prayer uh, for the Pope's intention, finally, is something left to the choice of the faithful, okay? It just says to pray for his intentions, but uh, they suggest an Our Father and a Hail Mary. And one sacramental confession uh, suffices for several plenary indulgences, you know, so long as it's made in that time frame, but a separate Holy Communion and a separate prayer for the Holy Father's intentions are required for each plenary indulgence. And you can only gain one plenary indulgence per day. Now, for the sake of those who are, you know, legitimately impeded, confessors can commute the work that's prescribed and, and some of the conditions that are required, except obviously detachment from sin, even venial sin, which I suspect seems to be the most difficult part of the usual conditions. Detachment from all sin, even venial sin. But we're going to talk about that when we come back. In the meantime, consider this. The church would not offer the faithful something that's impossible to attain. More on when we come back, right after these messages. Okay, before the break, I was talking about the conditions for receiving a plenary indulgence and talking about how one of those is uh, to be uh, detached from all sin, even venial sin, and how often people think that that would be the most difficult of the usual conditions. And I asked you to consider this, that the church would not offer something to the faithful that's impossible to attain. So I think to understand uh, this condition, the first thing we should understand is what it's not. It is not a requirement to be free from all sin, okay? It doesn't require freedom from sin because we're all sinners. It doesn't require even freedom from temptation. On the contrary, it is detachment, okay, which is freedom from attachment to sin. Now, what does that mean? Detachment from all sin, even venial sins, means that there is no sin that you are, are unwilling to renounce. And you should be able to tell if you're fulfilling this condition. See, what's called an attachment to sin is a refusal to amend a situation because, well, maybe deep down, you really don't want to let go of a certain sin, whatever it might be, gossiping or overeating or whatever. But that's different from ordinary human weakness. It's, that's different from the, the situation where someone falls into the same sin many, many times. How many of us go to confession uh, month after month and confess the same uh, sins, right? But confessing that sin is about renouncing that sin. It's about making that firm purpose of amendment. Even if you fall, 
you still purpose not to commit that sin again. So uh, you should be able to tell if you have an attachment to sin. Okay? Christian penance is above all an interior virtue. Right? It's an attitude of struggle against sin, and it's a willingness to be converted. And according to the church, that is certainly possible to achieve. And finally, you should remember that um, you, can, you can gain a plenary indulgence every day of the year, but you can apply those indulgences either to yourself or to the souls in purgatory. Unfortunately, they may not be uh, applied to other persons living on earth, okay? So you can't uh, gain a plenary indulgence for your spouse or your kids or whatever. <coughs> there's a, uh, but you can apply them to the souls in purgatory. In fact, there's even a devotion called the heroic act where you apply all of the indulgences you gain to the poor souls in purgatory, right? You, you don't, you don't intend to gain any of the indulgences for yourself, but all on, on uh, behalf of the souls in purgatory. And the idea behind the heroic act is that when those souls are released from their temporary prison, that they will show their gratitude by interceding for you from heaven, you know, both now and, uh, you know, in the event that you should go to purgatory, those saints will be praying for you. So that's a, a quick or maybe not so quick guide to indulgences, okay? And <clears throat> there is a related means of, of growing in holiness this Lent and all year round, and that is the use of sacramentals, Okay. Sacramentals are the blessings and exorcisms used by the church and all of those things that she blesses or consecrates to religious use. And, and they're called sacramentals because they resemble the sacraments and because many of them are used in the administration of the sacraments, right? Holy water, for example, is a sacramental, and, but holy water is used in the administration of the sacraments. When you go into a church and you dip your hands in holy water and you bless yourself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. <coughs> Pardon me, that prayer is a sacramental and the holy water that you use is a sacramental as well. Okay, so blessings, exorcisms, and those things that are blessed. Um, now the sacraments, of course, are visible signs that were instituted by Christ to give grace. Okay, the sacramentals, on the other hand, were instituted by the church but Jesus sanctioned the use of sacramentals, obviously by the many blessings that he bestowed during his earthly ministry. And that would also include the many exorcisms that he performed. And I have, I, I've got a, a number of sacramentals here. I'm wearing a brown scapular. Brown scapular is a sacramental. I have around my neck here some medals. I've got a pardon crucifix, which is an indulgenced sacramental. Thank you very much. I got St. Michael here, St. George, a couple of my patrons. And also, this is a, a medal of the holy face of Jesus from the Shroud of Turin. All right. Those are all sacramentals. Uh, my rosary beads. Okay. When the rosary beads, it's also the, the, all of these things have been blessed by a priest. Uh, same thing with your rosary breed, beads. Um, when these beads are blessed, they become a sacramental. And of course, the rosary is an indulgenced prayer. And I mentioned before, you gain a partial indulgence when you pray the five mysteries or, or decades of the rosary, and you can gain a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions when you pray the rosary in public. But uh, you might, you know, I mentioned you can only get one plenary indulgence per day, but praying the rosary 
with your family counts as praying the rosary in public. And what that means is if you're in a state of grace and you're going to confession and receiving Holy Communion regularly, you renounce all the sins in your life and, and uh, uh, you're praying for the intentions of the Holy Father, you make your intention to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers and works uh, that you're going to perform that day, and you pray a daily family rosary, then that is a, uh, you can be gaining a plenary indulgence every single day. It's a simple, effective, and infallible way to become a saint. And that is no nonsense. All right, we're talking about sacramentals. I want to make one thing, that we, we make use of sacramentals um, with faith and devotion, but never as objects of superstition. Okay. If you use sacramentals in the way that they should be used in acknowledgement of our faith, okay, in the, uh, our faith in the efficacy of the blessing of the church, which God himself founded, all right, then our act is going to be pleasing to God and the sacramentals will be of great profit to us. So if we wear a crucifix or a medal or the brown scapular, you know, uh, hoping that by God's grace, uh, that it will help to preserve us from evil, help us to grow in holiness. That's not superstitious, okay? But we have to remember that sacramentals by themselves have no power. The only power that they have is because of the prayer of the church. That's why they need to be blessed, okay? And and that power of the prayer of the church it was given by the authority of Christ. All right, quickly then, the chief benefits obtained by the use of sacramentals. All right. Um, if we use them with proper dispositions, that is, while in a state of great and with firm faith and confidence, sacraments can profit us greatly through, number one, actual graces. Right? You get the grace necessary. You don't, need, you don't get sanctifying grace. That comes through the sacraments. But when you're in a state of grace and you make use of the sacramentals, you get actual grace, grace to help you act, you know, in a way that's pleasing to God. Second, the forgiveness of venial sins. Sacramentals uh, excite good thoughts and inspire devotion and greater love of God, as well as a greater sorrow for sin. And that devotion and sorrow brings grace. And the grace thus obtained, thus obtained in turn obtains the forgiveness of our venial sins. Right? Saying that the Our Father devoutly will forgive your venial sins. Contrition always remits sins and sacramentals are an aid to true contrition. Number three is the remission of temporal punishment, right? We talked about uh, um, <clears throat> indulgences and so forth. Sacramentals also. Considering the old times, uh, the Israelites were granted numerous graces through the use of certain objects. And if it was there in the new law, then the spiritual results must be obtained in the new law. In fact, the new law fulfills the old law, and so the, the spiritual results must be even greater than they were in the Old Testament times. Number four, health of body and material blessings. The apostles anointed with oil those who were sick, just like we do in the church today, and healed them. Okay, That oil, now the, the anointing of the sick is a sacrament, but the oil is a sacramental. Uh, and there are many, many ways uh, and many examples in modern times of the extraordinary effects of sacramentals, uh, making certain prayer practices, the, the three Hail Marys, for example, wearing the brown scapular, praying the rosary. There, there have been many miracles and healings that have been attendant upon the devoted use of sacramentals. And finally, 
protection from evil spirits, protection from the evil one. You know, we need the protection of sacramentals against the devil who goes about like a roaring lion, right, looking to devour our souls. And we can see this again, uh, uh, many examples. Um, St. Teresa of Avila advocated holy water as a great defense against the devil. Uh, we know that uh, from the story of St. Benedict of Nursia, right, the father of monasticism, that um, they were going to, his enemies sought to poison him. And they gave him a chalice of poisoned wine, and he made the sign of the cross. Before he drank, he made the sign of the cross, and the chalice burst, saving him from ingesting the poison. Right? So uh, the sacramentals are a great protection from evil spirits. Whenever we are in trouble or in pain or danger or temptation, the use of sacramentals is a great benefit. Every Catholic should have a blessed rosary and should use it. And every Catholic should wear a, a, a blessed crucifix or a, a medal, uh, you know, the miraculous medal, the medal of your patron saint, the, the brown scapular, or, and there's a, there are other scapulars as well. Every Catholic uh, should, should make use of the sacramentals because it serves to remind us in times of danger and temptation that there's a God who cares about what happens to you and who cares about what happens to your soul. And, and the use of the sacramentals also teaches the faithful the truths of religion, right? They, they, they're taught by sacramentals. The truth of the faith is taught by sacramentals through the faculty of sight and the explanations that, that we hear uh, through, uh, you know, explanations. Okay, let me put it this way. Sacramentals are a visible sign of the faith that can teach us through sight the way explanations of the faith teach us through hearing, okay? So sacramentals are like, like picture books of the faith. They are an aid for us to, to understand and to embrace our religion. And that is one of the three things that I think in these very difficult times are the most necessary for us to preserve our faith. So number one, that would be devotion to Christ, especially in the Holy Eucharist, and devotion to the Blessed Virgin, and to embrace the Catholic faith to embrace it, to learn it, to live it, and not just inherit it, okay? So thank you very much, uh, as always, for listening. Thank you for being with us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Of course, you can go to our website and or go on the app and find out how to donate or uh, become a monthly donor. But we especially need your prayers. That is what keeps us going day to day here at VMPR, and we thank you for it. And until next time, I want to say personally to you, thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.